Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer in Tel Aviv. In case you haven't noticed, the news never stops in the Middle East, and that's why it takes something significant for a busy working journalist to decide to take a pause and focus on writing a book. Here in Israel, June is not only Pride Month, it's the time of the year that the people of the book celebrate books. So we're devoting this podcast to two journalists who have covered the region for decades, and both of whom happen to have books coming out. Their two books are very different, but similar in nature in that they shed new light on familiar stories. In one case, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, and in the other, the Holocaust. My conversations with Dina Kraft, co-author of the autobiography My Friend Anne Frank, and with Ruth Marks Eglash, author of the novel Parallel Lines, both of which hit the bookstores this month, are coming up. Dina Kraft is my colleague here at Haaretz English. She serves as our opinions editor after an illustrious career so far covering events in Israel for major international outlets, including the New York Times, the Christian Science Monitor, and the Associated Press. She co-hosts a podcast of her own, Groundwork, about Israeli-Palestinian conflict and cooperation. The book that she co-wrote with Hannah Goslar, my friend Anne Frank, debuted on June 6th and soon after hit the New York Times bestsellers list. Hi, Dina. Congratulations. <laughs> hey, Allison. Thanks so much. We've heard so many Holocaust stories, read so many Holocaust memoirs, and we have heard so much about Anne Frank. Did it give you pause when you were asked to take on this project, yet another Holocaust memoir, yet another Anne Frank project? Or was it clear to you from the outset that telling Hannah Goslar's life story would give you the opportunity to offer the world something very different? Yeah, I was thrilled from the moment I was approached with the idea of writing this story. I was lucky enough to meet Hannah Pick Goslar many years ago when I was an AP reporter. And I was like so many other, you know, Americans grew up reading Anne Frank's diary in middle school, and so did I. And I felt very attached to Anne Frank after reading her diary. I felt like she was someone I could relate to. I felt like I, too, was getting in trouble for talking too much in class. I felt, you know, I felt like she would have been my friend. I was really bereft when I got to the end of the diary. And all there was was a few sparse lines about her death. And um, I remember being crushed. And when I met Hannah the first time back in 1998, I was so delighted to meet a real-life friend of Anna Frank. And um, I call her Anna now because that's how I heard of her for all the many months that we sat together. She was Anna. And um, and there wasn't just Anna and Hannah. There's a, th- there's a third girl named Sana. There were Hannah, Anna, and Sana. And I I understood th- that Hannah had a story to tell. And to borrow a, a title from a, a Dutch book, um, Anne Frank was not alone. There were other children in this neighborhood. There were other children in Holland. There were other Jewish children across Europe. And they too had a story. And I was so moved. I mean, all these years later, I remembered so vividly the story that um, Hannah had told about re-encountering Anna later on in Bergen-Belsen. We can talk about that a little bit later. But um, it felt very clear to me that there was there was something to be said here and that I really, really, really wanted to do it. And full disclosure, since I know you personally, Dina, your own family has its own Holocaust story. Your mother's family made a narrow escape from the Holocaust, so it must be very personal for you. Yeah, it felt very personal. And I had family left behind in Europe that was not lucky enough to escape. And I, when I was sort of um, researching and learning more about Hannah's own family's attempt to, to flee Europe, I, of course, could not help but think about my own family and how, how close it was for them. So by working on the project, what did you learn about Anne Frank that you didn't already know from her diary? 
Yeah, if I think I got an outside perspective of Anna, it was sort of like if you imagine watching a film, you know, in the diary, you were close up, you're zoomed up on Anna and, and, and so zoomed up that you're, you're inside her, right? You're inside her inner thoughts. Otto Frank, her father, after the war, reading the diary said, I didn't really know my own daughter until he read the diary. I mean, it's, a, it's a very intimate, you know, it's, it's her diary, it's her, it's her words and her perspective, right? And here you get an outside perspective on Anne. Here you get an outside perspective, not just on, on Anne, but on her family and on the world she was part of. I mean, there was this very close-knit group of families. Um, and I tell their story. It's the Gosler family, Hannah's family. It's the Frank family. It's Santa's family, the Letterman family. They were all German-Jewish refugees who had come from pretty prosperous, successful backgrounds in Germany. They were all, especially the mothers, heartbroken <laughs> to leave Germany. It was very, very hard for them to rebuild in this new place. Meanwhile, their daughters were kind of quickly you know, acclimatizing and finding their way. And they felt incredibly safe in Amsterdam. And I think one of the things that really stays with me is how safe their life felt, even though the war was encroaching, even though things were bad, even though Hannah would, you know, spend her afternoons lying on her tummy, reading the newspapers and talking politics with her parents. It wasn't like she was completely kept in the dark. But the Frank family and her family really tried to keep their daughters as protected as possible. And yet when you do the research and the recent Ken Burns documentary about the Holocaust in America brought this out, these parents, while they were creating the secure environment for the kids, were scrambling to do anything to get out. They were desperate. You know, and I was lucky to have research done by Hannah's own cousin, um, who deserves a shout out, Professor Ben Ravid, an emeritus professor of history from Brandeis University, who had gone through and done the work of, of putting together the different letters and telegrams that his family, um, his mother was was Hannah's aunt, um, and how, you know, his mother, who, his, the aunt, and then the, another brother in Switzerland were doing everything possible to find some way out. And so it's a very connected family, keep in mind. You know, one of the letters that Hannah's uncle uh, wrote was to nonetheless and the, the Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis, who was also part of Zionist circles and asking him for his help. And you see how the Americans, they understand there's danger, but they don't fully understand the urgency. So there's a turning point in the book, which tells, again, the story of these girls' childhood, their friendship, even, you know, under the growing cloud of Nazi rule, they, you know, manage to keep this friendship and, you know, they play, they have fun together, they have birthday parties. And then all of a sudden, one day, Hannah goes to visit her friend Anna, and the apartment is empty. Correct. Yeah. She knocks on the door. Her mother has had a, a scale to um, return back to Mrs. Frank, and she wants to play. It's it's July, you know. Uh, it's early July in 1942. School is out for the summer. She knocks on the door, and for the first time in her life, somebody who's not a member of the Frank family opens the door. It's the family's border. And uh, he says... The Frank family is gone. It appears they've 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 fled to Switzerland, and she can't believe it. You know, she can't believe it, and she ends up returning back with another friend, Jacqueline Van Marsden, who was Anne Frank's other closest friend. And they come back. Um, they want to see if you know Anne has left them a letter, a goodbye letter. They want to see what she's left behind. There's any kind of clues, and they're completely shocked to see breakfast dishes still in the sink and beds left unmade, which was never the case in the very orderly Frank household. And they look for her diary because they're 13-year-old kids. And Anna has told them that in her diary, she's kind of done what you call like a, a modern day slam book. She's written down all the <laughs> names of the classmates and said what she thinks about them. And uh, they wanted to see what she had to say about them and about their friends. And they couldn't find the diary. Um, and they they were puzzled to see that some of her favorite games and books were on the shelf and that her beloved cat 
Muchi, I think was the name, Mutsi, this black cat was left behind, which made no sense to them either. But they accepted the story they were told that that the family had fled for Switzerland. Although if you would like, you know, scratch beneath the surface, it was impossible to cross the border into Switzerland in those days. So from that moment, the girls are physically separated, but they never leave each other's minds because Hannah told you that she was always thinking of Anna, presumably in Switzerland, living this ideal life. And from what Anna wrote in her diary, she couldn't help thinking about her friend Hannah. So what did they imagine was happening to each other? And how was that so far from the actual reality their friend was living? Yeah, you have to realize that when Anna vanished that July morning, that was the first of the friends to to vanish, quote unquote. Um, Just a couple of days later, uh, if you looked out the window from um, the apartment over Mervedra Plain, which was this grassy uh, square that their apartments overlooked, you would have seen the shadows of 15 and 16-year-old children with backpacks on their back and bedrooms. They were the first group of young, mostly German Jews, who were deported. And in that group would have been Margot Frank. That is, a, they, the, She got the call-up order. The Frank family sees this. They move up their plan to go into hiding. Among those 15 and 6-year-olds, it was a 15-year-old boy named Alfred Bloch, which, who was the uh, boyfriend of Hannah, and he comes to say goodbye to her. So from then on, more and more people are getting deported. More and more people are uh, vanishing in their classroom. The teacher would call out names and no one would answer. And they, people would, you know, a certain student wouldn't answer. And they wouldn't know if that student was deported or if they'd gone into hiding. But Hannah, but Anna, you know, Anna, Hannah thought was safe. And she had this very idyllic image of her like sipping hot chocolate and ice skating with her grandmother and her cousins in Switzerland. And that wasn't the case. That wasn't the case. So if you move forward in the story, it's February 1945. At this point, um, Hannah has been deported with her with her family to Bergen-Belsen. And she's living in a camp called the Star Camp. This is a camp of what's called, quote unquote, like exchange Jews. The plan was that they would be exchanged um, by the Germans for British prisoners of war. And so they were kept in slightly better conditions than Jews in the other parts of the camps. And one day, this tent camp uh, appears just on the other side of a fence, and it's filled with women. Um, They look quite haggard and skinny, some of them almost skeletal. They're wearing the black and white prison garb. Um, They have come from Auschwitz. And the Bergen-Belsen swells in number with, you know, many more fold people than there were just weeks before. And it is forbidden to go to the fence. The German soldiers make it very clear it's forbidden to go to the fence. You're not allowed to fraternize or exchange information. But Women being women uh, need to find out what's going on and communicate and connect. And at some point, there was Dutch herd from the other side of the fence. And the Dutch women in, in, in Hannah's side of the camp uh, start sharing information. And a neighbor comes back to her and says, you know, Anna Frank is over on the other side of the fence. She's there with, in, in, this, in this so-called tent camp. And Hannah's like, what are you talking about? No, she's not. She's having hot chocolate in Switzerland with her grandmother. And she didn't believe it. Um, but she decided she wanted to go find out for herself if Anna was there. And she was warned by the women in the barracks, do not go. You know, you'll be shot and killed if the soldiers find you. Because remind you, um, after a certain hour, it was curfew at Bergen-Belsen. You couldn't leave your barracks. And if you were seen wandering about, and if you were seen definitely by the fence, uh, you would be shot and killed on, on sight. But she creeps out on this very dark, rainy, freezing cold night in the, you know, the coat she'd been wearing for the last two years that she'd outgrown. And she shivers, you know, from fear, but also from the cold. And she approaches the fence very gingerly, you know, trying not to get caught by the spotlight. And she calls out quietly, hello, is anyone there? And lo and behold, a voice comes back from the other side of the fence. And it's not just anybody. It's August von Pels. August von Pels, from anybody who knows the story of Anne Frank's diary, was the woman, another woman who lived in the, the attic together with them. And 
she knew um, Hannah from her family uh, back in Amsterdam. And she said, very casually, oh, you must be here for Anna. I will bring her to you. But Margot was too sick to come. So she brings Anna to the fence and they have this remarkable reunion, very difficult, um, very moving meeting. And she finds an Anne that she didn't know or a, did a not changed recognize, person. Yeah. Did not almost recognize. I mean, keep in mind that because the Germans didn't want the two groups on the other side of the fence to, to connect, they, they stuffed it with, with straw. So you couldn't actually see the other side. But she recognized her voice and they exchanged information. And Anne wailed to her, you know, um, I have no one left in the world. I have no one left. Um, at that point, she... You know, she had seen her mother and she thought she, she was with her mother in Auschwitz, but she assumed that her mother was, was going to die or be killed soon. She knew that people, anyone over 50 was sent to the gas chambers. Her father at this point was 55. She knew of the gas chambers. She, in fact, told Hannah about the gas chambers. This was completely new information for Hannah. Bergen-Belsen was a concentration camp, but not a death camp. So she did not know about the gas chambers. And um, she's freezing. She is starving. And... Um, she just has a, like a filthy blanket to keep her warm. And she also bemoans to Hannah that she has lost her hair, that her hair has been shaven. And of course, for Hannah, she understands immediately the gravity of this loss for a 15-year-old girl. She, Hannah would Anna loved her hair and spent a lot of time taking care of her hair and trying to make it curl and brushing it out. And she considered it her, her best feature. So she was brokenhearted for, for Anna when she heard that her hair was also gone. When I read that scene, I remembered the line that I'd read in the Anne Frank chapter in the Dara Horn book, People Love Dead Jews, which is based on an article that Dara wrote earlier. And she pointed out that Anne Frank wrote about people being truly good at heart three weeks before she met people who weren't. And she talks about people holding up Anne Frank as some sort of person who offered some kind of false absolution um, to the Germans, to the Nazis, to what happened to the Jews based on words that she wrote before she really understood what people were capable of doing. And later in the book, I noted that Hannah says something quite similar, right? Well, Hannah says, yeah, Hannah says that she does not think that Anna would have been writing those same words after experiencing the dehumanization um, and depravity of Auschwitz and Bergen-Belsen. And that's in part part of why she felt, I think, um, sort of a a mission to tell Anna's story. She feels feels like her story, and I feel like this book is very much sort of a— if not like a sequel to Anne Frank's diary, it, it, a sort of a continuation of it. You know, this is a story that Anna Frank did not live to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she sort of helps helps tell the world about that. And Anna's father, who she didn't know survived, which was so tragic. She said, I have nobody left. She didn't know that her father was alive. She Maybe she could have clung to that somehow. It was her father who pushed Hannah into continuing uh, Anna's story. Yeah, he basically anointed Hannah in 1957. This is after the diary, of course, has become a huge worldwide sensation. And after he was very good to Hannah following her always, release from the camps. Yeah. Always. And one of the most heartbreaking moments for me writing the book was with, with Hannah was the letters that I had from Otto Frank, you know, these beautiful, beautiful letters to her after the war where he signed his name, Om Otto, Uncle Otto to her. And um, just after the war, um, Hannah at this point is 30 kilos and recovering at a uh, hospital in Maastricht in Holland. And she gets a letter, I believe it's in early July of 45, saying, you know, Hannah, I'm so, this is from Otto Frank, saying, Hannah, I'm so glad to have found you in the hospital. I'm going to come and visit you and have you any word of Anna or Margot. 
And she's so delighted because she's so looking forward to seeing him again. She's so looking forward to telling him that Anna and Margot are alive because she has seen them. So she's seen Anna and Bergen Belsen. And so the first thing she does when he walks into her hospital room is to, to burst out with this information, which, of course, is tragically unfortunately, not true. And he himself has just gotten word just weeks before, and he has to break to her the tragic news that the girls are not coming back. So Dina, it seems like the term ghostwriter isn't just a coincidence, right? The, the way you get into these projects is kind of mysterious. What was it like to step into the shoes of Hannah to write in the voice of someone who has seen so much trauma, who's been through so much to like actually vicariously experience the Holocaust and experience the camps firsthand? Yeah, um, it wasn't easy. You know, it was a lot of going to deep, dark places together. Um, it was hard for her sometimes. Um, on the one hand, it felt like it, it was it was sort of invigorating for her to talk and to, to talk about certain chapters. And it was fun to draw her out about the good times as well and to really sort of like press her memory. I think it was, you know, sometimes she would, I would drive her a little bit crazy trying to get like the telling detail, you know. Um, but she was 93 years old, you know. Uh, she was not in, she was in fairly frail health, but she was in very, very sound mind. She was incredibly sharp and had this very like witty sense about her and this dry sense of humor that I really, really loved and appreciated. But we talked about hard things, obviously. And sometimes she would say, like, I have to go lie down and take a nap now. And I, and that's what I would do, too. I would say more often than not, after having a long interview with her, I had to rest in some way, just like physically and emotionally rest and reset. She started telling me about nightmares. Their nightmares were coming back. And my nightmares, in some ways, about these things were beginning. You know, and even now, and in, in, in now speaking about the book, you know, some bad dreams are coming back. So it's, 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 uh, it was, it was not easy, but it felt like a, a really, I call it like a beautiful task, you know? And towards the end, when she was really frail and last fall, and we knew that the end was near, um, it was this very sort of uh, split screen f- moment where, you know, she was, you know, ailing in Jerusalem and I was in Tel Aviv writing as quickly as I could. And it seems like she felt it was her responsibility to tell the world Anna's story. And now it kind of feels like the baton has been passed. You are now telling Hannah's story and Anna's story. Yeah, I guess I guess in a way that's that's what's happening. And I think that's sort of the 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 mission of of our generation, I think, is that we've become the memory keepers. We are now witness to those who bore witness. And um, I think Ellie Wiesel had something smart to say about that was something like like that you you become a witness in a way, too. You know, Um, for so many years in the world of Holocaust commemoration, the focus, of course, was Holocaust survivors bearing witness and telling their stories and the real reliance on them to come and do exactly what Hannah did to get on airplanes, to uh, speak to audiences large and small. Um, for years and years, she was also speaking to audiences at Yad Vashem in Jerusalem and to tell the story. So now it's it's sort of, it's, it's, a, it's a job that we don't, no one really wants to have that job necessarily, but it's, 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 there's no choice. One has to sort of carry the baton as it were. And it's gratifying to me that, um, you know, through the sort of coattails of Anne Frank, other people will learn the story of, of, of Hannah and also so many others as well, whose voices I hope come through this book. What would Hannah think about how well the book is being received about the New York Times bestseller list? If you could tell her about it, what would you say? <laughs> I would say, Hannah, remember when I said people would be interested? They they are, because you used to always say, who will be and who this who will this be interesting to? Who will this be interesting to? She was so sort of self-effacing. She's like, who's going to really want to be? Who's going to? How, how are we going to have enough to say? How is this going to be pulled off? Like she was sort of puzzled by the whole thing. You know, this was not. 
her idea to write a memoir in 93, you know, like she had, she had told her story throughout the years. There's a book that came out for middle school children um, in 1998 of a biography by someone named Allison Leslie Gold, which is excellent. It was a, was a helpful um, tool for me in working on the book. Um, it was based on interviews she had done with Hannah back in the 1990s. She also used to say to me, we should have started this 20 years ago. <laughs> but, you know, I think um, maybe in some ways, you know, she had the time to sit with me and she had this sort of way to look back, not just at her early story, but also as, as her story as a storyteller of her own story and of Anna's story that she'd been doing so, so many years, starting in 1957 when Otto Frank tapped her to start doing so, you know, throughout throughout the rest of her life. So now you're back on your usual beat as a journalist covering the mostly the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I was wondering if you felt like this um, time that you spent in Hannah's world changed your perspective, her story, her Zionism, her determination to come to the land of Israel. You know, here Jews on the right think that never again means that we have a responsibility to never let something like this happen to Jews. And, and, and people on the left in the Jewish and Israeli world think that never again means that we can't let it happen to anyone else. I was curious how you think her story intersects with the story of this country. I mean, her story intersects so many ways with the story of Israel. I mean, I think it it it, it saved her sort of emotionally and physically. Um, you know, when she came out of the camps, she and her sister were the only one in their families to survive. Her father and her grandfather had both been very ardent Zionists. Her grandfather had been a um, a young colleague of Theodor Herzl. Her father was the you know also very active in the Zionist movement in Germany and also in in, in Holland. And um, and her father had a dream. It, his dream was to come settle here. Um, and for her, you know, after the war, it, ma- it made it very clear that she had a roadmap. She was going to sort of fulfill her father's dream and her grandfather's dream and come here. And she came here, you know, she came here in 1947, um, just six months before the War of Independence broke out. And she sort of came of age with Israel um, as a country. And I think what's sort of part of very interesting about her story is she was an immigrant um, finding her own way. And at the same time, soon after, her job was to help other immigrants from all over the world, but specifically immigrants from places like Iran and from India and I believe from Morocco and these villages outside of Jerusalem. And, and she was to treat the children's nurse, basically, for the children of these immigrants. And she was a sort of a, a mother for the families themselves who were new and needed to sort of be acclimated in the country. But I think about, you know, the fact that people remained silent. People did not help when they were trying to escape Nazi-occupied Europe. There was nobody really to help. Um, And for her, that made it completely uh, uh, clear that you have to have a Jewish state and you have to have a place that Jews can find refuge. But it also made her, with the suffering that she saw, the complete, you know, um, dehumanization that she experienced um, and the humanity with which she faced it um, and the women in the barracks together with her faced it really brought home to her that all people have to be treated equally, that, um, as she often said to groups that she spoke with, all people are created in the image of God. And it pained her to see Palestinian children suffering as much as it pained her to see Jewish children suffering. And she, you know, she dedicated her life to to helping children. Dina Kraft, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Coming up, Ruth Marks Eglash, author of the new novel, Parallel Lines. Ruth Marks Eglash has worked for a number of important media outlets, including the Washington Post, the Jerusalem Post. She is now a senior correspondent for Jewish Insider. And she's here because she's the author of a newly released novel, Parallel Lines. Hi, Ruth. Welcome to Haaretz Weekly. Hi, Allison. 
Normally, a journalist in Israel decides to write a book, takes on a nonfiction book about what they've seen, about what they've reported. You turn to fiction. Why did you make that choice? I think that's an excellent question, Alison. And many people have been asking me that since the first day that I decided to write a novel. And uh, quite a few people along the way told me, why are you writing a fictional novel? You're a journalist. Uh, take some of your experiences. Write this. Write something nonfiction. You know how to interview people. You know how to talk to people. You know how to write in a factual, uh, narrative way. But uh, for me, I've always wanted to write fiction ever since I can remember. I think journalism was just a stopgap on the way to that. And um, the more that I sat down and thought about what I wanted to write, the more I felt like fiction, that sometimes you just need to tell certain stories in a fictional way. And I guess I was feeling very limited with the, with the um, framework of journalism when I was writing some of the stories. And as you mentioned, I worked for the Washington Post for eight years and I covered the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the conflicts inside Jerusalem very, very closely. And it's very limiting having 700, 800 words where you have to include quotes from people, you have to include um, context and historical background in a news story. And I was feeling like I needed to write something with, that didn't have any boundaries, that could go in any direction that I wanted it to. And I, maybe as well, I needed this therapy where I had more control over the story. And that is why, for me, writing the story in fiction was so much easier in many ways than writing it for a media outlet. Your story, your book, which I guess is labeled as a young adult novel, although I as an adult thoroughly enjoyed reading it. So, you know, it's not only for young adults. It's about modern Israel. Specifically, it's about Jerusalem and its conflicts, its contradictions, its difficulties seen through the eyes of three young women. One is a Jewish secular Israeli. One is an ultra orthodox young woman. And one is an East Jerusalem Palestinian. What made you decide to look at this world through the eyes of three female teenagers? First of all, these characters were in my head for a really long time. Um, the secular Israeli Jewish character whose name is Tamar is very much based on my daughter, my middle daughter, Geffen. And she was, uh, at that time, had just started school, uh, middle school in the center of Jerusalem on Rehov Hillel. And she was going into Jerusalem every day. And suddenly she was exposed to some of the events in Jerusalem. About a year after she started, there was this series of uh, stabbing um, and shooting and car vehicular attacks in Jerusalem. And she was coming home and asking me about it. So I had this idea of, a, you know, a young person in Jerusalem asking questions about what was happening around her. So that was how it started. But then I started to see the other two characters. Wherever I looked in Jerusalem, I saw Rivki, who's the ultra-Orthodox character. I saw these young girls uh, going to school in Jerusalem in their blue school uniforms and wondering what, how they view Jerusalem and how they view the other groups in Jerusalem. And I was becoming more and more curious about them. And I was also through my work at the Washington Post getting to meet young Palestinian uh, girls in East Jerusalem. And I was really struck by how 
Many of those that I met were very high academic achievers. I did a story uh, for the Washington Post about a girls' school in Jerusalem where the children there were learning both the Bagrut, which is the Israeli high school matriculation, and the Palestinian system, the Tawajihi. And I became very fascinated by this uh, idea that, you know, there's these three different groups. I mean, there's more groups, but there's these three main groups in Jerusalem. They all live very, very closely intertwined, but they live completely separate. And I became really also fascinated with this little corner of Jerusalem. And anyone who's listening who lives in Jerusalem will know what I'm talking about. There's this area of French Hill, um, Beit Hanina and Shofat and uh, Marlot Daphna. And the three, three distinct areas that are within one square mile of each other, and the people who live there have no interaction day to day between them. Tamara's voice must have been very natural for you. It's, after all, based on your daughter. What kind of research did you have to do in order to be able to speak and think in the voice, in the perspective of a young Palestinian girl and a young ultra-Orthodox girl? Yeah, so, I mean, that's where I really employed my journalism skills. I mean, even with the Tamar character, I made Geffen and her friends come over and I sat and interviewed them and asked them questions about what they think, because as much as we know our teenagers, we don't really know them. So um, I sat down with them and I asked them questions. And then I went and met with young uh, Palestinian girls in Jerusalem and asked them about their city and really asked them some tough questions about uh, how they view the situation, how they view the other, what they think the solutions might be. And I did the same with uh, with uh, Haredi girls. Um, that was fascinating. They were really, uh, I had a, a lot of help from a ultra-Orthodox journalist who has four daughters and she was amazing. She read over the parts of Rivki for me and she kind of guided me through what would happen in a in a normal Haredi family because I think we always look at the extreme stories. That's what we hear in the media. And when you look at something from the outside, you don't look for the median voice. You look for maybe the extreme voice. But she kind of took me through and really guided me. And I sat with her daughters and her daughter's friends from Beis Yaakov and, uh, and heard about how they view the other groups in Jerusalem. I was particularly struck about how Tamar and Noor at such young ages were being so pressured to take ideological, political stands that even we as adults have trouble with, you know, whether or not to be sympathetic to uh, using violence in order for to achieve Palestinian liberation. And the same on Tamara's side, you know, when she's exposed to uh, radical uh, right-wing extremists who are angry over the effect of terror attacks on the, on the Jewish population. And, you know, these young, young people who are, you know, really being asked to take a stand. Yeah, that's something that really... Uh bothered me for a very long time. And I think if you look at the conflict, you see how it's really driven by young people. I mean, in Israel, you know, you mentioned before that this is this is labeled as a young adult book. And why is that? Because the main characters are 16. Because if I'd taken them at any other age, if I'd examined their lives at any other age, they would be at very different stages. And as you know, young Israeli, secular Israelis go into the army at 18, or they're already preparing for the army. And young Palestinians go off to university, and young ultra-Orthodox women might end up getting married at that age. So they would, their lives would end up going in different ways. So that's why I really had to focus the story on 16-year-olds. And I do think that, uh, you know, as I dedicated the book in the beginning to 
to all the young people in adult conflicts because that's really what the story was about. It's about how this conflict that we write about as journalists, that we read about as adults, is impacting young people. And we don't really think about it, but we've seen the effects in recent months and in recent years as the age gets younger and younger for people to get involved in this kind of politics. And you'd set the action definitely in some of the most intensive parts of your reporting career when uh, events were, were unfolding, to some of the, the, the traumatic summer of 2014, yeah. um, when the three uh, yeshiva boys were, uh, were kidnapped and, and murdered, and there was so much going on. The book's point of view is uniquely female. It reminded me, which I'm often reminded of, of that we really almost always see Israel's story told through the eyes and through the experiences of men. As a journalist, the vast majority of our sources and uh, the people we tell stories about are male politicians, obviously the country's leaders, nearly all of the significant military and, uh, and security figures. How was telling the story of modern Israel through female eyes different? How did it feel different than when you're writing about it sort of from the, the powerful perspective of the country's leaders? I mean, it felt very natural for me to be telling it from this female perspective. I have long felt that uh, that you get a very different perspective from uh, from the women, um, especially uh, on the Palestinian side. Uh, the The girls that I met anyway were really impressive. They were all studying and wanting to go on and become neurosurgeons and doctors and work in the medical field, except... I don't want to give any spoilers away, but uh, they were all uh, really into the studying and learning. And um, it just felt very natural for me to look at this, um, look at the situation from the eyes of these young girls. And I also wanted to show that how young people are, regardless of which group they come from, at a certain age, or maybe at any age, they are struggling with the same teenage angst that any young any teenagers anywhere would be dealing with. So it doesn't, it's regardless of the fact that they come from these different groups and they grow up in a city that's so divided. At the same time, they're having problems with uh, convincing their parents to let them do what they want to do. They're having problems with friends that they're falling out with that they suddenly realize they have very different views to. They're realizing or they're trying to find their own place in the world. So it was very interesting to me, this, uh, this idea that most teenagers struggle with the same things, except for in Jerusalem, obviously, they have this added layer of having an ongoing intractable conflict happening all around them. The title of the book, Parallel Lines, refers to a motif of the book, which is the Jerusalem light rail. You've lived in Jerusalem or, you know, worked in Jerusalem before, during and after the light rail. Where did you get that idea? And do you feel like the light rail system has somehow transformed the city and the interaction between, as you say, these populations that live near each other, but not with each other? So I, I think that the I have lived in Jerusalem for a long time and um, Jerusalem as much as it's divided, there are places where all the populations intersect. And the light rail or the train line that runs from north to south has fascinated me since it opened because it really is this like uniting thing that runs all the way through the city, suddenly it opened up um, these neighborhoods in East Jerusalem that no one even knew existed. I, I would say even 
the following that in when the second intifada broke out in 2000 um, the city felt even more divided than ever before. Suddenly, they built this wall that separated Jerusalem from Ramallah and and neighborhoods in East Jerusalem that were on the other side of the wall. And there were areas of Jerusalem that Jewish Israeli people would never go into. And then obviously, there's neighborhoods of Jerusalem, um, ultra-Orthodox neighborhoods of Jerusalem, where maybe secular people, depending on what they're wearing, will not feel comfortable. So you have this train line that goes through all these neighborhoods and it's uh, very useful for all the residents of the city. So suddenly everyone meets there and it seemed very apt to call the book Parallel Lines because on the one hand, you have this train that unites everyone. On the other hand, you have these communities that are all living these parallel existences side by side. So you said the book was somewhat inspired by your children. Did they read the book? What did they think of it? I have to end with that question. <laughs> they each got a copy of the book. Um, I believe that they are making their way through it. Um, I think Geffen's waiting for the audio ver- audible version. <laughs> um, you know, they're all, all three of them are Israeli-born, and uh, while they speak fluent English, uh, reading an English book is not that easy for them, but I hope they'll read it. Soon, very soon. <laughs> and then, then then the real reviews will come in. Yeah, no, they're, they're very excited, especially Geffen, because she, uh, she knows that her stories and her experiences were some of the inspiration for the book. But the other ones as well, I think as I was writing it, as I was finishing up, uh, my oldest um, son, who is uh, is 22, he was about to go into the army. So I realized I had to work in this whole like idea of young people going to the army and the debate between them, which happens early on in the book. Like, do we want to go to the army? Should we go to the army? So each one is in there in some some way. Ruth Marks Eglash, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. And that wraps things up for Haaretz Weekly. Thanks to my guests, thanks to my producer, Dan Brumer, and to my editor, Nahara Malkin. I'm Alison Kaplan-Summer, and until next week, Shalom from Tel Aviv. <laughs>